0: Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome, this is Interpreter Radio. I'm your host, Martin Tanner this program is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, each Sunday night from 7 until 9 p.m. on KTALK Media. We welcome you to join us there or on any of the podcasts that we have on a variety of subjects, including all the Come, Follow Me segments at interpreterfoundation.org. The Mission of the Interpreter Foundation is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship. We encourage and aid personal study and faith by providing accurate information to the public and church members about the church. The Interpreter Foundation makes available free to everyone on the Internet, Scholarship on a Wide Variety of Subjects at InterpreterFoundation.org We also respond to misunderstandings and also criticisms about the Church. Although we are not owned, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we defend it and do scholarship about it. Nevertheless, the material published by the Interpreter Foundation, is the sole responsibility of the authors and the foundation itself. This particular broadcast of Interpreter Radio is sponsored by LDSAgents.com, a network of over 3,000 friendly, top-quality real estate agents serving the Latter-day Saints in the United States and Canada for more than 20 years now. Whether you're buying or selling a home, be in touch with LDSagents.com and let their professional, friendly real estate agents help you find just the right home you're looking for, one that meets all your needs in a safe neighborhood, with the right schools, with a temple not far away. Now it's easy to find a real estate agent who speaks your language and shares your values whether you're buying or selling, no matter where you are, let LDSAgents.com reduce the stress of your move. That's LDSAgents.com. And now we move ahead to the topics for tonight. During the first hour of our show, we have Come Follow Me for three of the Twelve Minor Prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then during the second half of our program, we will respond to four specific criticisms about the Book of Mormon that are sometimes claimed to be anachronisms, and that would be mentioning barley in the Book of Mormon, bees in the Book of Mormon, horses, and elephants. So we hope you enjoy that. And for those of you who may know some of that information, it should be hopefully a good refresher. I promise I will provide some information specifically about horses that nobody listening will have heard before. Nahum. The book of Nahum is the seventh book in the 12 minor prophets of the Hebrew Bible. It's attributed, of course, to the prophet Nahum, who was probably prophesying somewhere around 612 B.C. We know that it's in the 7th century B.C. Josephus places Nahum during the reign of Jotham, while others place him beginning in the reign of Ahaz, Judah's next king, or even the latter half of the reign of Hezekiah. All three counts date the book to the 8th century B.C. The book would then have been written in Jerusalem, where Nahum would have witnessed the invasion of Shirinacharib and his retreat. The scholarly consensus is that the book A vision, as it's sometimes called, was written at the time of the fall of Nineveh at the hands of the Medes and the Babylonians. This theory is also demonstrated by the fact that the prophecies made must be dated after the Assyrian destruction of Thebes, Egypt, which is in about 663 B.C. This kind of helps date when Nahum would have prophesied. This event is mentioned in Nahum 3, verse 8. Little is known about Nahum himself. His name means comforter. We know that he was from the town of Elkosh or Alkosh, depending on how you would like to pronounce it, as is mentioned in Nahum chapter one, verse one, which scholars have attempted to identify with several different cities, including a modern Al Kesh in Assyria, and Capernaum of northern Galilee. The prophet Nahum was a very nationalistic Hebrew and lived Amongst a number of different groups, the El Koshites in particular, in peace. His writings were likely written, as I mentioned before, somewhere around 612, 615 BC, before the downfall of Assyria. One of the fascinating parts about Habakkuk is there's this simplified Plan of ancient Nineveh, showing the, the walls and the gateways that, that I have seen, and it kind of gives context for the prophecies that we have uh, by, by this great prophet, and it also sort of ties him in with Jonah, who we've already heard about not too long ago. What Nahum is talking about is the same thing we hear about in Jonah's prophecies, the approaching complete and final destruction of Nineveh, which is the capital of this uh, great city that's flourishing as part of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was a vast city at its time, and the center of civilization, at least according to many reports. It was also considered a bloody city and full of lies and robbery, according to some contemporary writers. Jonah had already apparently mentioned his prophecy to Nineveh at the time that Habakkuk was was uttering his prophecies. And after Jonah, then we have Nahum and Zephaniah and later Habakkuk. So that's, that's sort of the order. Nineveh was destroyed apparently by fire around 625 B.C., and the Assyrian Empire came to an end, an event which changed the face of Asia. Archaeological digs have uncovered the amazing splendor which Nineveh would have been if you were alive back then to see it. It had massive walls that were eight miles in circumference. It had a water aqueduct. It had palaces. It had a library with 20,000 clay tablets, including accounts of creation and a flood. So in its own way, although not Jewish in nature, the accounts that you had and some of the writings that were considered important— in Nineveh were very similar to those of the Hebrews. The Babylonian chronicle of the fall of Nineveh tells the story of the end of Nineveh, which eventually happened. Babylonian forces joined a number of others and laid siege for three months. Assyria lasted a few more years after the loss of Nineveh but attempts by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho II to rally the Assyrians failed due to opposition from King Josiah, which sucked the Israelites into this huge overall conflict that was going on in the Middle East at the time. Now let's take a look at the book of Nahum itself. Nahum consists of two parts— The first is a prelude in chapter 1, followed by chapters 2 and 3, which describe the fall of Nineveh. Nineveh is compared to Thebes, the Egyptian city that Assyria itself had destroyed in 663 BC. Nahum describes the siege and the frenzied activity of the troops in Nineveh as they try to in vain because it didn't work to halt the invaders poetically nahum becomes sort of a part of the participant of the participants in the battle it's kind of I- ironic that he takes this point of view because he's discussing those whose end is is certain in his writings and prophecies. He uses a number of similes and metaphors in his writing style, which are really effective in drawing in the reader. Don't overlook this book or any of the others. There's some wonderful, fascinating material in this short but exquisite book. You have these phrases, for example, Nineveh will be will become weak like the lion hiding in its den, that kind of a thing. You read also taunting songs and funeral references where he describes Nineveh as having the sleep, which is equated with death of the Assyrian people and the demise of this once great... Uh, city Nahum's prophecy carries a particular warning to the Ninevites of coming events although he's partly in favor of the destruction he because they've been so bad he also would like to save them if possible. he's kind of conflicted if you read between the lines a little bit one might even say that the book of Nahum is a celebration of the fall of Assyria. It's kind of like he's looking at what's happened and saying, yeah, you you guys deserve this. This isn't just a warning or speaking positively of the destruction of Nineveh. It's also a positive encouragement and message of comfort for Israel and Judah and others, including us in in these days, who have experienced cruelty. The prophet Jonah, in his earlier prophecy, talks about where God shows concern for the people of Nineveh. Of course, Nineveh is saved when Jonah prophesies. But in Nahum's writing, we have a different theme, and that is the righteous justice of God and how God dealt with and punished the Ninevites according to their cruelty. The Assyrians had been used as God's rod of anger and the staff in their hands as God's indignation. In the beginning of this fascinating book, Nahum, he shows God to be slow to anger, but that God will not ignore the guilty. God brings vengeance and wrath to pass on those who have not done what they are supposed to. Those who have disobeyed, those who have done evil, those who have failed to listen to God's warnings. In the opening passage in Nahum, we read that God is jealous and the Lord takes revenge, and that He is furious with them, and that He reserves His wrath for His enemies, which this implies is the Ninevites. God's judgment on Nineveh is all because of the wickedness of this city, including the lust of a harlot who is described as the mistress of sorcerers sorceries, who enslaves nations and of course, as you read between the lines, this is Nineveh the city. This is not, of course, a, a real harlot. This is the way God is describing through Nahum just how bad Nineveh actually is. John on the Isle of Patmos used a similar analogy in Revelation chapter 17, if you want to take a look at that. The prophecy of Nahum is referenced also in the uh, apoc- apoc- excuse me, apocryphal book, uh, I prefer deuterocanonical, in, in the books between the Old and the New Testament, the book of Tobit. In Tobit chapter 14, verse 4, in the New Revised Standard Version, this guy, Tobit, who was dying, says to his son, Tobias, and to Tobias's son, quote, Hurry off to Medea, for I believe the word of God that Nahum spoke about Nineveh, that all these things will take place and overtake Assyria and Nineveh, Indeed, everything that was spoken by the prophets of Israel who God sent will occur, close quote. So here we've got a second source in the book of Tobit for Nahum and his prophecies. The uh, King James Version has a little bit different, uh, but... That's okay. Habakkuk can be understood as an allusion to the history as described by Moses for the minor prophets in promising God's assistance to his people who also have to be reminded of how God will reprimand them, but how he will help them even in a miraculous way if needed if they will only follow and obey him it's it's quite a wonderful message uh, habakkuk is like so many of the old testament books that gives sort of this uh, reproval of those who are doing evil and then even if he even if certain doom is prophesied there is some reference to the future about God's promises of wonderful things in the future, and that is true of Nahum. All right, on to Habakkuk. overview of Habakkuk. He's also one of the 12 major, or excuse me, 12 minor prophets whose prophecies began in the same general time frame. In the 7th century B.C., almost all information about Habakkuk is drawn from the book of the Bible that has his name, the book of Habakkuk. We don't have any biographical details about him other than his title, which is the prophet. Outside the Bible, he's mentioned over the centuries in different Christian and Jewish traditions. But that all is sort of tradition. We don't know much about him from contemporary records other than this somewhat obscure book in the Bible that bears his name. His name, Habakkuk, is found in the Bible only In this book, it's not even referenced somewhere else, and because of that, we're even uncertain about what his name means. The Septuagint transcribes his name into Greek as ambicum, which is quite a bit different from the way we we find it Um, coming to us from the Masoretic side, from the, the Hebrew side. The Vulgate translates it into Latin as Avakuk. The meaning of his name, we really don't know. There are a couple of ideas. One is the Hebrew word meaning embrace. Another one is that it sounds like An Acadian name for this really nice-smelling plant, which sounds quite unlikely to me, but hey, who knows. We also, of course, know almost nothing about his life aside from the fact that Habakkuk was a great prophet in his day. And we can, of course, infer that from the fact that after all these millennia, His is one of the books that has been brought down to us by Jewish tradition as one worthy to be placed in the Hebrew Bible. There are three chapters in the book of Habakkuk. The first two are a dialogue between Yahweh, or Jehovah, and Habakkuk the message is that the just shall live by faith. You've heard that many times before. Why? Because you probably read Habakkuk, but also because this idea of living by faith is something that permeates Christianity, early Christianity and Christianity today. We hear even from contemporaneous people and earlier Latter-day Saint prophets, this idea that we're supposed to live by faith in God. That idea of living by faith is found in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. It's also interesting that a copy of the first two chapters of the book of Habakkuk was found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the form of a commentary. This commentary included the actual text of Habakkuk, and so it's kind of an elaboration. It's, it's quite interesting. More, more on this later, if we have time. But the Dead Sea Scrolls mention Habakkuk, so that shows how important he was during the uh, millennia before the time of Christ. The prophet Habakkuk is not generally believed to have written his book any earlier than the early to late 7th century B.C., not long before the Babylonians laid siege to and captured Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Now, for Latter-day Saints, that means something. That means that along with Jeremiah, and probably just after Isaiah, Habakkuk was around prophesying at the time Jerusalem fell, and was probably alive at or around the time Lehi left Jerusalem, Habakkuk identifies himself as a prophet in the opening verse. Due to the nature of the book, there have been some scholars who think that Habakkuk may have been a temple prophet. Temple prophets are described in 1 Chronicles chapter 25 verse 1 as musicians. They use harps and lyres and cymbals. And some scholars think that the opening verses of Habakkuk and some of the later sections just sound like temple music that was composed and performed by some of these temple prophets. Now, nobody knows that for sure, but that is a possibility. There's another fascinating Jewish tradition about who the prophet Habakkuk is. Although, as I mentioned before, his name doesn't appear anywhere else. There are some Jewish traditions that say Habakkuk the prophet was the Shunammite woman's son who was restored to life by Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that's really a fascinating tie-in. Uh, why that would come about if it weren't true is speculation, but that's a fascinating tradition. The prophet Habakkuk is also mentioned in the narrative of Bell and the dragon, also part of the apocryphal books between the Old and the New Testament. I mentioned Tobit earlier. Bell and the dragon is another in the books of the deuterocanonical additions to the book of Daniel that you find in the apocrypha. In The superscription of the old Greek version, Habakkuk is called the son of Joshua, of the tribe of Levi. And in this book, Habakkuk is lifted by, and by this book I mean Bell and and the dragon, Habakkuk is lifted by an angel to Babylon to provide Daniel with some food while he's in the lion's den, so. Uh, Fascinating tradition there as well. Let's talk for just a minute about the Babylonian Empire in 600 B.C. This is the time when Jerusalem fell. The Babylonian Empire was uh, angry with Israel and they were coming after it. References to the Rise and advance of the Babylonians in chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Make it look like just before Jerusalem fell, Habakkuk was making his prophecies. If that's true, one possible period that he was prophesying might be during the reign of Jehoiakim from 609 to 598 B.C., The reason this is a real possibility is that during this reign, the Babylonian Empire was really growing in power and was really threatening the Israel. As a matter of fact, they would shortly thereafter march on Israel. They did that in 598 B.C. Jehoiakim died while the Babylonians were marching towards Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim's 18-year-old son Jehoiachin assumed the throne. Upon the Babylonians' arrival, Jehoiachin and his advisors surrendered Jerusalem after a pretty short time. With the transition of rulers and the young age and inexperience of Jehoiachin, they were not able to to stand up against the Babylonian forces. There's just no chance that was going to happen. There's a sense, if you read Habakkuk 1, verses 12 through 17, that they already know, they have this sense of how brutal Babylon actually is. The book of Habakkuk is a book, of course, of the traditional Old Testament that's part of the Twelve Minor Prophets in the Masoretic Text. The book is divided into chapter 1, a discussion between God and Habakkuk, 2, the prophecy of the different woes that will befall and third is sort of a a psalm or um, song, if you will, of the future and what will what will happen. Habakkuk is a fascinating book. The major theme is that Habakkuk is trying to grow from a faith of Perplexity, and, and why do I say that? Well, in the very first chapter, he says to God, Yahweh or Jehovah, how long will I cry and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, please stop it and you will not save. How long will that last? That's a paraphrase, but that's the gist of what he is saying there. And so he's sort of perplexed at what God's doing, and over time in this book he comes to accept it and understand what's going on and why God is doing what he is doing. In the middle part of chapter 1, God explains that he will send the Babylonians, to punish the Israelites. In chapter 1, verse 5, we read, quote, Look among the nations, watch and wonder marvelously, for I am working a work in your days which you will not believe though it is told to you. Close quote. In chapter 1, verse 6, God tells Habakkuk, quote, For behold, I raise up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation that marches upon you through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs, close quote. One of the fascinating ideas about Scripture appears at chapter 1, verse 12, which according to Jewish scribes, the text was changed from, you, God, do not die, to we shall die, which is kind of an interesting way, way to change things, a textual emendation there. In the final part of the first chapter, the prophet expresses shock at God's choice of the instrument for judgment. In chapter 1, verse 13, we read, quote, You who have pure eyes to see evil and who cannot look on perversity, why do you tolerate those who deal treacherously and keep silent when the wicked swallows up the man who is more righteous than he? Close quote. Fascinating question. direct it to us and and to God and to all those who read it. In chapter 2, Habakkuk awaits God's response to this question that he has raised, and God explains that he will also judge the Babylonians, and much more harshly, quote, "'Because you have plundered many nations,' God's now talking to the Babylonians. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. Because of men's blood and for the violence done to the land, to the city, and to all who dwell in it, woe to him who gets an evil gain for his house. Close quote. This is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So, fascinatingly, here, especially in this book of Habakkuk, we learn that everything isn't black and white. God is using the evil Babylonians to punish the evil Jews. And then later, God will wreak punishment on those evil Babylonians as well. And eventually, the Jews will be restored. It's a fascinating Uh, description and use by God of those who are bad and those who are worse. So finally, in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we have the prophet expressing his ultimate faith in God. Here, Habakkuk has matured. He's no longer questioning God or saying, I don't understand. Why are you doing this? Here, he says, even if he doesn't understand, he's expressing faith. Quote, For though the fig tree doesn't flourish, nor fruit be on the vines, the labor of the olive fails, the fields yield no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh, in Jehovah. I will be joyful in the God of salvation. That's in chapter 3, starting in about verse 17 and going through to the end. Let's talk about the importance of the book of Habakkuk and, and wrap it up. Habakkuk is accepted as canonical by the Jewish and Christian faiths. As I mentioned before, it's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was one of the very first of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found. This is just had a great influence on people. The the reference for the Habakkuk commentary is is uh, 1-Q-P-H-A-B. This is cave number one of Qumran, and then it's designated H-A-B, meaning Habakkuk. It was, of course, discovered in 1947. The Dead Sea Scrolls version of Habakkuk Commentary was published way back in 1951. It has had a great deal of influence on a number of researchers because it was in such pristine shape. Fascinatingly, the tomb of Habakkuk is identified by Jewish tradition as on a hillside in the upper Galilee region of northern Israel, close to the villages of Kedarum and Hukok and about six miles southwest of Saved. And if you're wanting to get that from another direction, it's about 12 miles north of Mount Tabor. There is a small stone building that you can find there. Those was erected in the 20th century that protects the tomb by tradition of, of Habakkuk. Archaeological findings indicate that this particular location dates to the Second Temple period, which is kind of neat. Alright, our last book of of the three for today, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the name of several people in the Old Testament, but there's only one prophet named Zephaniah. And he is a prophet who prophesied in the days of Josiah, king of Judah, 640 to 609. So we see here that he's also a contemporary of Jeremiah. He's just after, or perhaps contemporaneous, with Isaiah. He's at the same time as Habakkuk and, and also Nahum. So when you read in the beginning of the Book of Mormon that there were all these prophets of doom in Jerusalem, and people were getting depressed. That's the the inference of the opening passages of the Book of Mormon. The Bible bears that out. It's quite fascinating. And this is not something that Joseph Smith would have known because he would not have known all these detailed times of, of when these events were happening. Zephaniah's name is transliterated to uh, Sophronius in Bibles translated from the Vulgate, which is fascinating because to to our Western ears, Sophronius and Zephanius don't sound that similar. The name might mean concealed by Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh has hidden him or he has been hidden by Yahweh, perhaps to protect him when the Babylonians come. Uh, it's... A fascinating and sort of obscure reference. We don't know where he got his name or what it means. Zephaniah is the son of Cushi, the great grandson of the king Hezekiah. Ninth in the literary order of the twelve minor prophets, Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, ruler of the kingdom of Judah from 640 to 609, but before Josiah's reform in 621 BC he started the unique source containing the minimal knowledge of his personality is just the 3 chapter book we have in the Old Testament book of Zephaniah that's all we know about him basically The scene of his activity was Jerusalem. That's where he prophesied. He seems to know the city of Jerusalem very well. The existence of the Zephanians linked to the book is considered purely hypothetical. Many listening won't know who the Zephanians are, and I don't need to say anything else, I guess. Under the two preceding kings of Judah, Ammon of Judah and Manasseh of Judah, the religion of other deities, especially Baal and Ashtart, had developed in Jerusalem, bringing with them elements that were considered really, really bad. And so Josiah who was a dedicated reformer, wished to put an end to these perceived misuses and abuses and heretical ideas in religion. So one of his most zealous champions and his advisors in this reform was the prophet Zephaniah. And his writings are one of the most important documents for understanding the era of King Josiah. Zephaniah boldly predicts the destruction of Judah for the evil committed by its occupants. He warns that God will destroy the Jews out of their place if they don't stop worshipping Baal. Take a look at Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 4 he pleads them to return to the simplicity and accuracy of their father's original Jewish religion. The Age of Zephaniah was also a key important historical period because the lands of Western Asia were overrun by foreigners due to the migration of the Scythians in the last decades of the 7th century BC, and because Jerusalem was only a few decades before the downfall of Jerusalem and Lehi's departure, because of all these things, this message of impending judgment is the main thing that we read about also in the book of Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 1, starting in verse 2, through the beginning of Zephaniah chapter 2, we read warnings about the day of the Lord. This is a reference to other prophecies in the Old Testament. The judgment of the Lord is going to descend on Judah and Jerusalem as a punishment for the awful degeneracy, in religious life. And it's going to extend to all classes of people. It's not just the poor. It's not just the rich. It's not just some group. It's everybody. And it will be attended with all kinds of horrors and tragedies. It will be a terrible catastrophe. We read about that in... Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And so the Lord, at the beginning of chapter 2 of Zephaniah, tells the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, in verses 1 through 3, to repent and turn to the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 2, Verses 4 through 15, not only Jerusalem, but the entire world is subject to the judgments of God. This is quite a fascinating pronouncement because it's not often in the Old Testament that we hear that God is the God of the entire world. We read mostly about God being the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites. As a matter of fact, Israel means God's people. This says God is the God of the entire world. And there are specific inclusions there. The Philistines in verses 4 through 7, the Ammonites in verses 8 through 11, the Ethiopians in verse 12, and the Assyrians and Ninevites in verses 13 through 15. So it's pretty specific there. And in Zephaniah 3, verses 1 through 8, you have more about Jerusalem that is prophesied. Quote, Woe to the provoking and redeemed city! She hath not hearkened to my voice, neither has she received the discipline that I have given her, close quote. This severe idea of a reckoning upon Jerusalem sounds really dire and would have sounded really dire to those who were listening to it. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we also have this idea of a future kingdom of God. So you have a positive turn here, like with so many of the Old Testament prophets, in which the world will unite and turn to God and there will be prosperity due to the kingdom of the Messiah, which will be enjoyed by all who are there. Then we also read that the last recorded prophecy of Zephaniah, which centers on this uh, coming of the Messiah in the future. In Christianity, Zephaniah is commemorated with the other minor prophets in the calendar of the saints, and he's also been the inspiration for some wonderful music The prophet Zephaniah is a fascinating but not often uh, really appreciated prophet. He has a lot to say. And with that, we'll take a short break, and we will be back. Stay tuned. This is Interpreter Radio, and I'm your host, Martin Tanner.